Let's open our Bibles to uh, Matthew 13, where Paul read a little earlier this morning. I've entitled the morning's message, The Kingdom of Heaven is Like, Part 2. So let's look at the last four parables, beginning with verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but threw the bad away. And so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into a furnace of fire, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasures things new and old. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables uh, that he departed from there. Uh, Last week, we uh, dealt with um, four of the parables, and this week, uh, there's eight altogether. This week, we'll finish up uh, the remaining four. Um, Just a little review. If you weren't here last week, we we spent a little time talking about um, the parables. And even before I get started, I have to admit, I've been teaching the parables for many, many, many years, but this time through, I actually had a completely different understanding of why the parables were given to the disciples. And I'll develop that thought when we get down to the last one, the parable of the householder. Now, um, the parables, as we look at them, let me draw your attention to verses uh, 14 and 15. One of the purposes for the parables is actually to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Last week I had you turn to Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8. You can if you want to. I'm just going to quote it. If you look at verses 14 and 15, a parable is to conceal, not to reveal. It was not given to the common people for understanding. It was given to the disciples. And in explaining that, in verse 14, we read, and then the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. So here is a parable that's actually an Old Testament prophecy, saying, hearing you will hear and not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. And the heart of the people has grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed lest they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their heart and turn so that I should heal them. The people aren't going to understand. But if you read the next two verses, and blessed are your eyes, he's talking to the disciples now, 
for they will see and your ears will hear. Not just the disciples, but anybody who has been born again by the Spirit of God. They will also have this understanding. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear. And then he tells them, therefore, hear the explanation of the parable of the sower. Now, if you're taking notes, just jot down Isaiah chapter 6. It's um, where Isaiah sees the Lord in a vision, high and lifted up, and it says his his, uh, throne and his garment filled the whole temple. And Isaiah sees this. It was in the same year that King Uzziah died. And um, he became undone. And... um, he said, woe is me. I'm a wicked man, and I, li- I live with wicked people, and I'm standing in the presence of the creator of the universe, the, a holy God. As it says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. And here's Isaiah. And the Lord is, then says the question, who am I going to send to the people? And Isaiah raises his hand and says, I'm available. I'll go. And then he quotes what we just read as a fulfillment. This is Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. And then the Lord said to Isaiah, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. And that is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. We find uh, four parables this morning. The parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, the parable of the dragnet, and the parable of the householder. And with that much of an intro, let's look at the parable of the hidden treasure. And also, let me just say that the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price are really one and the same. They're very similar. So the parable here tells us in verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Now, I like to say for every New Testament teaching, uh, we have an Old Testament picture. Um, As we get towards the end of the study this morning, I'm going to show you that that it's not only biblical, but the Lord used it Many times, and I'll just point out a couple. But um, let's do a departure from this, keep your figure here, and let's turn back to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. This would have been before uh, the first king, who was David. And uh, it's sort of a slice of life, I guess you would say. It was a 360-year period of time where Israel was up and down with their walk with the Lord. And it was during this period of time that we have the picture or the, or the story of 
Ruth. Now, I'm only going to point out, I'm going to go through it quickly, and um, I'm going to point out maybe one verse uh, in chapter 1, one verse in chapter 2, and so on and so forth. The setting is Bethlehem. Uh, the main characters are uh, Naomi, her husband, Elimelech. Um, they had two sons, Melian and Chilion. And uh, there was a famine in the land, no food. So they actually had to uh, sell their property, and they heard that there was food in Moab, so off they go to Moab. Husband and wife and their two sons. Well, they no sooner get there than we find out that Melian and Chilion, um, they married two Moabite gals, one named Orpah, not Oprah, Oprah, it's Orpah, and the other was Ruth. And um, both the sons die. And uh, she is distraught. She's concerned for her two daughter-in-laws. And she heard that the Lord had once again brought food back into the land of Israel in the city of Bethlehem. So she says, I'm going home. And the girl said, well, we're going with you. And um, Naomi pleaded with them, don't go. Um, I, I'm too old to have kids, and you're not going to wait, even if I did have kids, you're not going to wait around for them to, to grow up. Stay here in your native land and marry and, and have children. Well, uh, Orpah did exactly that. But Ruth's love for Naomi was so much that she begged with her not to send her. And we have these, these famous verses here that um, in verse 16, entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I want to die. And there I will be buried. And the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death puts you and me apart. She's staying. So Naomi just goes along with it and says, okay. So if you look at the last verse of chapter 1, she's returning to town, and we find it It tells us in verse 22, so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the country of Moab. And then it tells us it came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So that's chapter 1. They're home, but they're without means. They have no food. They have no money. And uh, so they do what poor people do. And what was written in the law is if there were, were poor people who lived among you, and it came harvest time, you couldn't harvest your whole fields. You had to leave the corners ungleaned. And it was sort of a social program for poor people. They could go out and glean the fields, and that way they wouldn't go hungry. So let's just read verse 1 of chapter 2, and also verse 20. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, who, of Elimelech, and his name was Boam, Boaz, and he had great wealth. In verse 20, 
It tells us, then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man, Boaz, is a relative of ours. He is our near kinsman. Now, in the Hebrew here, it's the word goel, and it actually means redeemer. So the word kinsman is, actually means a redeemer. And what we have in chapter 2 is, is uh, Ruth going out, and she was glinting, and all of a sudden, <laughs> the boss shows up. And uh, he says to his workers, The Lord bless you. How would you love your boss to greet you on Monday morning that way? The Lord bless you. <laughs> and all the employees say back, and the Lord bless you right back. And um, that was the arrangement. All of a sudden, Boaz is looking around, and he, he sees this beautiful young gal. He says, who's that over there? Oh, that's, that's Ruth. Um, you know, she was the one that came back with Naomi, the Moabitess, Gentile gal. And she's been gleaning, gleaning all morning. And Boaz, in verse 8, um, calls her over. And he says, I want you to listen to me. He says, I know that um, who you are, um, and you came back. I know you're a foreigner. And then he instructs the men in the field. He says, I want you to not only let her glean on the corners, but I want her to glean with you. And not only that, but I want you to take some of your, that you've already gleaned, and just kind of push it over so she can find it. And... um, and she's blessed by all of this. She comes home from gleaning. She should have gleaned just a little bit. <laughs> and she comes home with this uh, huge amount. And uh, Naomi says, where in the world have you been gleaning today? And she says, well, at Boaz's field. And um, the lights begin to go on for uh, Naomi. Boaz? Did you say Boaz? Our relative, he's a kinsman redeemer. And um, he said, yeah, he told the guys to keep their hands off me, and he provided uh, extra for me. And so that brings us to chapter 3, last verse of of chapter 2. So she stayed close by the young woman of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest, And notice it also says wheat. It wasn't just barley, it's also wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So now we have a season of time. We have the beginning of harvest, and we have the end of harvest. Now, in chapter 3, Naomi seeks redemption for Ruth. Um, The harvest has come in. They have a harvest party. Um, The men shake out all the barley and wheat, and they store it. And then they have a great big uh, feast. And um, Naomi pulls Ruth aside. And he says, I want you to go to this party. But after they have uh, eaten and, and they've uh, drank and are tired, and they go to lay down, when they lay down, what I want you to do, get your best dress. Put some lipstick on. I don't know if they had lipstick, but if they did, put it on. (laughs) Look your best. And I want you to sneak in to where they are and find out where Boaz is. Well, Boaz is sleeping, and she takes and uncovers his feet 
and lays at his feet. And in the middle of the night, he feels something and looks up and he looks down and hears Ruth laying at the foot of his uh, bed. And in verse 9, he says, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your maidservant. And then she proposes to him. That's exactly what's going on. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a near kinsman. Literally, you are a redeemer for my family. And he said, blessed are you, my daughter, that you've shown more kindness to me. You didn't go after the young men, whether they were rich or, or not. And you've shown me this great kindness. And this is the only place in the Bible in verse 10 where a woman is called virtuous that I'm aware of besides Proverbs 31. Everybody knows, Ruth, that you're a virtuous woman because of your love and your kindness that you show to your mother-in-law, Naomi. And he says, I'm aware of it. And he says, don't worry about a thing. I accept your proposal. Dwight's paraphrase. But then he says, we have one problem. I am a near kinsman. But there is one relative that's either even closer to the family than I am. And I have to take care of business with him. So he says, you go home. And um, uh, he gives her a whole bunch of more wheat and barley. And she goes home, it says in verse uh, 17, with six ephahs of barley. He said, uh, and give it to your mother-in-law. And Naomi looks at Ruth in verse 18 and says, don't worry about it, Ruth, until um, he will not be still until this matter turns out. He will have no rest. So he's up the rest of the night. That brings us to the last chapter. And now, um, when we visit Israel, one of the places we show the gates of the cities at, uh, uh, up in the Teldan. And uh, this is where Boaz and all transactions would have taken place at the gates of the city. And so here's Boaz. He's up early in the morning. He's gathering all the elders. He's saying, come to the gates of the city. There's going to be um, um, a transaction taking place here, and I need witnesses. And uh, one who is a near kinsman, if you have the old King James, I like this better because it says, ho such a one. Uh, Pastor Chuck had a African gray, and he named his African gray Hosechawan. I thought, that's a great name for a bird. <laughs> I don't know if he didn't know his name, and if you have the New King James like I, it says friend. He says, friend, come on over here. Hosechawan, come on over here. And he says, you, you know this story about Elimelech. He died. They were poor. They had to sell everything, but now they've come back. Now, in the law, if you were poor, you could sell your property, but the property could always be redeemed by a family member. But it had to be a family member. Because remember, they were divided into 12 tribes, and they each got an allotment of land. So even though you lost it, if you had a redeemer, he could buy it back. So that's what's happening here. So he approaches the guy, and he says, Look, you have the right to buy everything that belongs to Elimelech and the family. He says, I'll take it. It's a great piece of land. He says, oh, there's one catch. In the day that you buy the land, you also have to marry Ruth, the Moabitess. And I'm reading into it a little bit, and he says, I can't do that. My wife would kill me. (laughs) 
Or, you see, she was a Gentile. I'm not going to marry a Gentile. So that could be an option too. So the custom was, if you were going to forfeit your right, the custom was to take off your sandal and give it to the guy. So Hosechuan takes off his sandal. He gives it to Boaz. Boaz holds it up. He says, look, everybody, this is a legal transaction. This day, I buy everything that belonged to Elimelech, and I'm going to marry Ruth. Now let's go back to our parable. Oh, and by the way, it says that um, uh, they had a son, and his name was Obed in 17. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And um, that's a whole Bible study within itself. So let's go back to Matthew 13 and the parable of the hidden treasure. Boaz is a type of Christ. He is the one in this parable who gave all to purchase the land. And when you think about Boaz, you know, he purchased the land, but was he really interested in the land? No, he was loaded. He was rich. He had all kinds of land. He was interested in one thing, and that's what is what came along with the land. In the same way, the kingdom of heaven all right, is like a treasure hidden in the field. You and I are the treasure, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So the Lord is the one, we like to say that um, uh, most commentators actually explain that we're the ones, we gave everything so that we could have the treasure of Jesus Christ. And we even have a song after that, I, I usually throw in here, I surrender all. Everybody know that hymn? I surrender all. Oh, no, I don't. And neither do you. So when Chuck said, make sure you've been in the Bible for a long time before you get to the parables, because it's not what you think. Here we have Boaz. He only wants the treasure. He's got lots of fields. He wants what goes along with it. And the other interesting thing is that Ruth is a Gentile. You're a Gentile. We have the Lord Jesus Christ purchasing by his own blood this planet, he died for the entire world, including Gentiles, so he could have this treasure that he calls the Bride of Christ. Let's go on to the parable of Pearl of Great Price, which is very similar. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Now, I'm going to quote a little bit from my favorite commentator, which is J. Vernon McGee. He says, the popular, the popular interpretation of this parable says that the sinner is a merchant man and the pearl of great price is Christ. The sinner sells all that he has that he might buy Christ. And now he quotes a hymn. One hymn says, I have found the pearl of greatest price. My heart doth sing for joy. And sing I must, for Christ is mine. Christ shall my song employ. And then he goes on to say, I cannot accept this interpretation. And I have dismissed it 
as unworthy of thoughtful consideration. To begin with, who is looking for goodly pearls? Are sinners looking for salvation? My Bible does not read that way, nor has that been my experience as a minister. Sinners are not looking for salvation. The merchantman cannot be the sinner because he has nothing with which to pay. To begin with, he's not seeking Christ, and if he were, how, he, how could he buy him? The merchantman sells all that he has. How can a sinner sell all that he has when he is dead in trespasses and in sins? That's Ephesians 2, verse 1, if you're taking notes. Further, the scriptures are very clear that Christ and salvation are not for sale. Salvation is a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. God so loved that he gave. And in Romans 6.23, we are told that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The correct interpretation of this parable reveals Christ as a, is a merchant man. He left his heavenly home and he came to this earth to find a pearl of great price. He found lost sinners and died for them by shedding his precious blood. He sold all that he had to buy us and to redeem us to God. Good place for an amen. Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty we might be rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he redeemed us to God. He is the one that bought us. Then he has some great insights into a pearl. And again, I'm quoting McGee. Now let's look at, at, the, at the pearl for a moment. The pearl represents the church. A pearl is not a stone like a diamond. It is formed by a living organism. A grain of sand or a foreign matter intrudes itself into the shell of a small sea creature. It hurts and harms it. The response of the organism is to send out a secretion that coats over the foreign matter The fluid builds up until a pearl is formed. Not a ruby or a diamond, but a beautiful white pearl. A pearl is not like other gems. It cannot be cut to enhance its beauty. It is formed intact. The minute you cut it, you ruin it. The pearl was never considered very valuable by the Israelites. Several scriptures, verses, give us this impression. For example, in Job 28, pearls are classed with coral. Although the pearl was not considered valuable among the Hebrews, it was very valuable to the Gentiles. When Jesus used the figure of goodly pearls, verse 45, our text, I imagine that his disciples wondered why. Oriental people gave to the pearl a symbolic meaning of innocence and purity, and it was fit for kings. And then he connected something that I've never seen before. And I'll end with this paragraph from McGee. When you come to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we find a description of the New Jerusalem, 
the future home of the church. Notice the emblem on the outside of the city. The gates are made of, that's what we call them, the pearly gates. The gates, how interesting, are made of pearls. This is no accident. It is planned that way by Christ's design. He is the merchant who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so we have the first two parables here of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price, uh, sort of very similar. And now we go on to the parable of the dragnet, and let's read that in 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but they threw the bad away. And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into a furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So it will be at the end of the world. Uh, the world in the Greek is a word, ion, meaning age. The Bible does not teach the end of the world. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 25 for further explanation of this. Let me draw your attention to verse 31. And while you're turning, let me do a little background. We're waiting for the Lord to come. We call it the glorious hope or the rapture of the church. We know there will be a period of time called the day of the Lord, which will last for seven years. We know that at the end of the seven years, according to, I won't have you turn to it, but if you're taking notes, just put down Daniel chapter 12. And if you're alive during the great tribulation and you see the event that's referred to as the abomination of desolation, then Daniel says, start counting, because 1,290 days later, the second coming will take place at the end of the tribulation. And then it says something interesting. And it says, but blessed are those who come to the 1,335th day. They're blessed. Question is, why are they blessed? And why the duration of time? If you do the math, it's 45 days. So from the time Jesus gets back until the blessed ones get to enter into the kingdom, there's an event that takes place. And we find it here in the parable of the dragnet. There's a separation. If you're in Matthew 25, look at verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Here's a picture of the second coming of Christ. 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation. And the holy angels with him, and he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all of the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. Evidently, this is a 40, it's going to take 45 days for this to happen. And then we have, um, blessed are those that get to enter in. Let's continue to read. 
and he will set the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Uh, Revelation 2 to the church, we are going to rule and reign with him for that thousand-year period of time. These are people who made it through the great tribulation that didn't die. But before they can enter into the kingdom, those who took the mark of the beast, they're not allowed in. They did not accept Christ. They rejected him. The others became believers in Jesus Christ through the 144,000 by the two witnesses. And remember, there's even an angel from heaven that preaches the everlasting gospel to every tribe, to every tongue, to every nation. So I believe that fulfills Matthew 24, verse 15, where it says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world, and then it says, and then the end will come. So now, before we can enter in, there needs to be the separation. Verse 35, they want to know, uh, he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, well, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in or you were naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those to the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. I was naked, didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You didn't visit me. And then he will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it not to the least of these, you did it not to me. Verse 46 is an important verse. It's one that's not taught much these days. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Judy and I were... Coming to church this morning, we had the radio on. They had a Bible teacher on that I'd never heard of, but he was preaching from Revelation 20. And he says, you know, nobody talks about the reality of hell, that it's real. And as a result, the effect that it has had, because people don't talk about hell and actually describe it as wailing and gnashing of teeth, uh, this guy was laying it all out there, and he says, look it, nobody does this anymore, what I'm doing this morning. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but I'm going to be in about 20 minutes. <laughs> the parable of the dragnet gathers in the good, separates the bad. What 
does the Lord say happens to the bad? Well, they're cast into outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. We find in Revelation 20, and this brother went on to expound, that the great judgment seat of the great white throne judgment is only for those who are lost. These are people who have died in their sins. They have rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Gang, we've got to get this and take this to heart. You have loved ones that are going to hell. I don't know how to say it any more clearly than that. And I think if there's any regret, regrets when we get to heaven, you know, the Lord said he'll wipe away every tear. Well, what are we crying about? No more death, no more sorrow. Well, there might be regrets for a while. People I could have and should have talked to had an opportunity. But, I, you know, I didn't want to talk about hell. I'm so uncomfortable. And, you know, Thanksgiving around the table, two things you don't talk about, politics and religion. Make sure you don't go there. Go there. If you love them, go there. Yeah, but that's going to cause division. That's exactly what Jesus said. But I want it to be peaceful. Don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. That in one's own home, there'll be those who are for me, those who are against me. Let me ask you an honest question. Is that the way it is in your house? Allow, allow the uncomfortableness to be there. They'll thank you later. They may hate you now. <laughs> But that should be so beside the point when you understand the consequences. My friends, we're talking eternity. We're talking the Bible, clear teaching that there's a heaven to gain and a hell to be that should scare the hell right out of you if you really understand what the Bible teaches. Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. It was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. My Bible says I'm saved by grace and not by works. Another good place for an amen. I don't want to be judged by my works. But here are people who have rejected Christ. They think they're good people. You going to heaven? I think so. Why? Well, I'm not that bad of a guy. And they, you know, it's so understanding, well, God, they think God judges on some sort of curve. My good deeds outweigh by bad deeds, and if my good deeds are better, then I get to go to heaven. No. There is none that are righteous. No, not one. Another good place for David Hocking, amen. amen. Thank you very much. The parable of the dragnet. It's just three or four verses long. But what we have here is somebody standing before a holy God in their sin. And the things that they thought, and this is what this preacher was expounding on as we drove the church this morning, was he was expounding upon the things that they're sure nobody knows about. And they're, they're secrets, and nobody will ever find out about them, not knowing that every thought, every deed that person has done has re- been recorded in this book. And by the things that were written in the books, and then it says, the sea gave up the dead. Well, we're told in the parable that the angels are sent out to gather them to this place. So the angels are gathering them from the... Um, 
uh, from the sea, we're told, and um, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, those that are, the, you know, the rich man um, that Jesus talked about with Lazarus. He's still there. He's going to be taken out of hell, brought to this place, delivered up the dead who were with them, and they were judged, each one according to their works, and then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone found not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's turn back to Matthew 13. And now we have a deeper understanding of this parable that is explaining to us um, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is, is like what? Well, a person going through life, eventually dying as a Christian and entering into the kingdom or dying in their sins and being cast into um, a furnace of fire where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. That is a parable of the dragnet. Now, the last one gave me a whole different perspective on the parables themselves. Now he's winding them up. It's debated by some Bible teachers whether this is a parable or not. I believe it is. And it's the parable of the householder. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? Now, every time I've, I've taught that verse, I sort of ragged on the disciples because they said, yes, Lord, we understood everything you just said. <laughs> and I'm always thinking to myself, no way, no way, but I've changed my mind. It's allowable. You can change your mind and say, well, I guess I was wrong. And I, after understanding the parable of the householder, I will admit I will no longer rag on the disciples for thinking that they didn't really understand this. They really did understand this. And they said unto him, yes, Lord. Then the Lord said to them, therefore, okay, because you understand all the parables that I've just taught, therefore, Every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven, he's like a householder who brings out of his treasures things old and new. And this is a very uh, personal verse, especially for those who teach and preach the word of God. We are to bring out things that are old and things that are new, he is addressing this to his disciples. And um, I'm going to have you turn to the book of uh, Romans at this time. Turn to Romans chapter 15, verse 4. If you're a householder, you're an overseer. Husbands, you're the head of your house. And that's the idea. And here, as it pertains now to the church, there should be in the church um, overseers, pastors, and this is who this is being addressed to. Primarily, it's how to do church. How do you do church? Well, you bring to the people that are there treasures, things that are old and new. I think the story of the book of Ruth and how it ties into the parable of uh, the hidden treasure in a field 
is a wonderful treasure. I call it a, a nugget. That the book of Ruth has a far deeper meaning. It's an Old Testament picture about a New Testament teaching, the parable of the hidden treasure. If you're in Romans 15, let me draw your attention to verse 4. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning. We're talking old, the Old Testament. That we, through the patient and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. This is exactly what Jesus did himself in Matthew 13, 14, and 15. He quoted Isaiah. And um, he was actually having Isaiah that was being fulfilled right here in Matthew 13, verses 14 and 15. Um, These pictures, turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. I want to give uh, biblical support for what I say for every New Testament teaching. We have an Old Testament picture. In Luke 24, picking it up in verse oh, 25, we have Jesus on the resurrection morning. There's two men. Their name... Their names are Cleopas, and we don't know the name of the other one. They were disciples. They're on their way home to Emmaus, and they're sad. And the Lord comes right up next to them and says, Hey, why are you guys so sad? What's your problem? And they said, Are you a stranger here? Don't you understand that the whole city of Jerusalem is turned upside down because we were, past tense, we were followers of Jesus. But he's dead. We're going home. And then we read in verse 25 that it said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? Why weren't you reading the the scriptures? The Bible said this was going to happen to me. Isaiah chapter 53, and then he says, And beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So I would have loved to have heard that Bible study. Boy, as he opened up the scriptures later, when he was saying grace, he broke the bread, and I'm sure he went like this. And they went, oh, it's the Lord. They saw the scars in his hands. And he disappears. And then they said this. Didn't our hearts just burn as he opened up the scriptures to us? People wonder why people like to go to men's prayer, Wednesday night Bible study, or even come to church at all if it's a packer or playing early, you know. Why do, why do you crazy Christians do that? Because we like to have our Our hearts burn within us as the Holy Spirit opens up the scriptures to us. And we go, wow, all that's in the Bible. And we, Jesus here, I'm sure, one of the things, if he's talking about Moses, um, he would have, I'm positive he gave this this story. Um, As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's a picture, that's one he would have, given them. And then in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, great verse. It's a picture. What do we have here? 
It says, God said to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, what does that sound like? (laughs) It sounds like John 3.16. God gave his only son that he loved. And he says, take him and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I will tell you. I'm sure he explained that's a picture of what his father allowed him to go through, according to Isaiah 53. Abraham took Isaac to what we call today Calvary. It's called Golgotha, the place of the skull. It's 777 meters above sea level. Is that an interesting number? You know that where they say it was, was on Mount Moriah. That's only halfway up the hill. It's still the mountain ridge of Moriah, but that's 742 meters above sea level. If you're going to offer an offering, don't you usually go to the top? And by the way, the highest place on Mount Moriah is called Golgotha. And we've, we've been able to go there. So we find here this um, parable of the holder. If you go to the book of Ephesians, and we'll begin to wind up with this this morning. And my whole new insight into what I think the parables are about Let's face it, the church has gotten off track, not just not talking about hell and the consequences, but it's been so watered down that the church has lost its salt, it's lost its light for one reason. They've gotten away from doing it the biblical way. I read the parables completely different this time. All these parables, the kingdom of heaven is like, and it explains different parts of what a church should look like. And then the Lord ties it all together by giving us the parable of an overseer whose responsibility is to bring out old and new. Old Testament scriptures that are fulfilled in the new. Even to the point of making a picture so that you can understand it even better. If you're in Ephesians um, chapter 4, picking it up, Oh, in verse 11. Verse 9 is Jesus going into heaven and sending the Holy Spirit back, and he gave gifts to the church. That's Acts chapter 2. But in verse 11, with the gifts, it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. I think if you're a pastor, you have to be a teacher. It should be one phrase, pastor, teacher. I believe the church needs to be taught. They don't need to be preached to. I mean, the gospel is presented, usually somewhere the gospel is in a Sunday morning message. But when you go through all of the old and you go through all of the new, that is what the parable of the householder, the overseer is. In this case, my responsibility as a pastor teacher, is now for you, for verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Do we not come here to get fed? Good place for an amen. Fed what? Well, we feed. Jesus said, man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from me. 
We want a good home-cooked meal, made fresh. And that is what we're told in Ephesians 2, where by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself, it's a gift of God. So then, if by faith it comes by hearing, what are we doing right now? We're hearing, but more importantly, you guys are understanding the Bible study. A person who is not born again, what did we read the prophet Isaiah said? You can tell them Isaiah, but uh, they're not going to hear. Their ears will be dialed. Their eyes won't be open. They won't get it. But anybody who receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, he will give you um, a born-again experience. Step one, it said, desire the pure milk of the word so that you can grow. We had a baby baptism, a dedication here this morning. Paul, I'm not going to let you off the hook. <laughs> what do you feed a baby? Well, what he was, she was throwing up on me in the back, milk. <laughs> and so a baby Christian needs the milk of the word to grow. But in Hebrews 6, he chewed out the Hebrews because they were only hanging on to the milk stuff. He says, I want you to put away the elementary principles. I want you to grow up not so that you can handle the steak, so that you can handle the meat, so that when you read the parables, you can say like the disciples, I get it. I understand it. So here we are, first beautiful day in, in June, and um, we are seeing the Lord lay out for the disciples how to do church. Because the church has gotten away from taking the treasures of old and new, most The ones that I see on TV today, they're nothing more than motivational speakers. They never open their Bible, much less get seriously or go deep into it. As a result, it leaves the one who are to do the work of ministry very unequipped. There's no fear of the Lord, very little little fear of ever going to hell. Well, we should. So I will close this morning with... um, the models that are out there today that um, bring in worldly leaders for leadership, I'm thinking of Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, uh, with their purpose-driven model. Gang, Matthew 13 is not a purpose-driven model. But it lays out one very important truth. Disciples, do you understand everything I just said? Yes, Lord? Okay. Then I want you to bring out the treasures from the Old Testament and tie them into the New Testament the people will see it and in their heart to go, wow, that's that's only something God could do. As a result, your faith is increased and you're not afraid to warn your friends. You need to accept Christ because if you don't, you're going to die in your sins and you will be eternally separated for God forever. And those are consequences that you do not want to play Russian roulette with your soul. It's too valuable. So in closing... Praise the Lord that we simply teach the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for Matthew chapter 13. We thank you for the parables that so many don't understand, but Lord, we are grateful that you've opened our eyes, you've given us ears to hear, and as a result of that, Uh, we are more confident of the hope that you place inside of us. Thank you for your grace, Lord, that we're saved by grace and not by our works. 
And thank you so much that your mercies are new every morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.